10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn. Welcome to the Twilight Show. Tonight we are talking about Equity in Education, the book, a practical guide for teachers levelling the playing field of learning. It's helping teachers improve the prospects of under-resourced and working class pupils. We're joined by the author Lee Elliott Major. Tune in, talk it out, off we go. Live from Swansea, this is the Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. And as I say, hello everyone, welcome to Swansea, welcome to the Twilight Show. It is not twilight, that time of year when it's been, I think twilight was, uh, you know, approximately about three o'clock today here in Swansea, um, but it is the Twilight Show and we are talking about equity in education. This wonderful book, A Practical Guide for Teachers, Leveling the Playing Field of Learning, uh, with uh, Lee Elliott Major, who should have joined us on the line. Lee, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? You are. Uh, maybe just a little bit closer to the microphone if you can. Yep. Is that better? Yep, that's uh, fabulous. And we will we'll work from there. You know, welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you for joining us. It's a real pleasure to be here. I've heard a lot of your shows over the years, so uh, it's great to be to be featured. Uh, fantastic. Well, as I say, you know, I did, I don't, you know, I don't know if you heard, really enjoyed the book. You know, I, I've read through it. I should say, listeners, you know, I'm not going to hold back here. I, I had a digital copy of the book. I enjoyed it. I bought a hard copy so that I could like hand it to people in the staff room and say, look, here, look, here is the, you know, read this. So I am sat here with the book in front of me and I, you know, I really want to pick your brain. So we'll dip a little bit into the book. We'll dip a little bit kind of into your brains as it were then as well kind of just pulling apart those thoughts but of course if you are listening to us we're live and you can reach out to us you can message us on uh twitter or x as it's now called at tt radio official or of course if you're listening live in the podbean app you can type your questions straight into the chat there and you can join the conversation um now i think just to get ourselves sort of startedly why don't you explain a little bit about yourself and what you currently do so um, this this sort of you know the idea of of helping uh, children from under resourced backgrounds we might come back to that uh, point about language um, is something that I've been interested in all my life. I'm I'm myself someone who comes from a background where no one in my family had been um, you know into higher education. I lived on my own from 15 I've got various stories of my life they, they, my, my friends always say it seems to get bigger every time I tell the story of my upbringing but I, I guess I if you looked at me at age 15 uh, you know all the stats that we look at you'd probably have said this kid's not gonna get on in life however we define that and you know it was other people that helped me out it was teachers that helped me uh, an uncle in my family 
that gave me a bit of support. Um, of course, higher education in those days, you've got a full maintenance grant, of course, uh, if you came from a background, sort of low income background. Um, so, you know, there's a personal dimension to this. So I, I got back into the education system and ended up, of course, doing a PhD and done lots of other things since then. Um, and so, so you know, it, it, it's a personal thing. But then I, you know, I was a Guardian journalist for a few, well, quite a few years, you know, I'm 55 now, I've done quite a few different things. Um, had, a, had a career in that, in that when, when, you know, the Guardian was a big newspaper. I don't know if people, listeners remember when there was these big education supplements, uh, don't exist anymore, of course. Um, and then I worked for a thing called the Sutton Trust, which, which many listeners will know of, which is a sort of charity committed uh, to uh, improving social mobility through education, eventually becoming chief exec. And then five years ago, uh, or nearly five years ago, I became the country's first professor of social mobility. And I guess, you know, my, my, my sort of whole, you know, and I'm involved in practical projects. I'm a professor of practice. So I'm involved in practical projects as well as research. But the whole rationale is, you know, people's backgrounds shouldn't determine what they do, whatever they go on to do in life, right? Uh, so I always tell the story when I do my lectures of, uh, I, I was Daily Mail, right? I, I was, uh, I featured in the Daily Mail and they did this story of me as the bin man turned professor. And it is true, I was a bin man and indeed a street cleaner, but um, what the story doesn't tell was that I, it was actually nepotism. My mum worked for local council. I had, a, it was a summer job. A very good summer job, actually. Um, and uh, the reason I tell that story is implicitly when you see those media headlines, you know, bin man turned professor, the sort of American dream sort of style narrative, it implicitly judges uh, people that do have different jobs. In this case, bin men, you know, and I think, you know, when I do sessions with primary school pupils, it's always lovely because we get into discussions about what we value in terms of jobs, right? So um, even though I suppose I'm a classic uh, story of social mobility in that first wave, if you like, I think I've come round to think, and this book, you know, Equity in Education, really summarises a lot of my reflections on these narratives, is that I don't think it's enough for us to focus on a few people that manage to sort of climb the social ladder. What we want is a system that's genuine inclu genuinely inclusive. So people like you and me keep our accents, although my accent's gone a bit, um, and we don't feel like we're imposters. We are able to flourish in a system, in a classroom or in a workplace that, that genuinely values people from different backgrounds. I still don't think we have that. I think we've got a very narrow uh, sort of perspective still, what I call the deficit mindset, which we'll probably get into. But anyway, sorry, that's a long introduction, but that's my history. And that's why I'm so passionate about this, this topic. Hello, you still there? Sorry. Yeah. You know, very, um, you know, useful and lots to unpick there. And I should say as well, you know, a, um, a very cool young person as well. And I would advise people, you know, not in that newspaper article you mentioned, but in another one, there is, a, I, I did manage to find a photo of you as a youngster, incredibly cool looking 
young person, I should say. I think it was in an independent uh, uh, um, piece uh, showing you, I, I think, possibly in, in your late teens or early 20s, looking incredibly cool as a young person in London. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. But, you know, I, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a big point here about, you know, uh, we might get onto this. You know, when we, talk, when we speak, speak about cultural capital in, in schools, there tends to be that Govian, Michael Gove, tendency to think of that only in middle class values you know so we tend to think of the importance of museums for everyone um going to the theater i have my own cultural capital as you say well i lovely i, I like the, the term cool there probably kids probably wouldn't even understand that term now right? <laughs> yeah but um but you know i bring my own cultural uh experiences and in my view they're just as valid the fact that i was uh, into clubbing and uh, playing guitar and all that stuff, you know, it's, it's just as valid as someone who plays a, a, a classical instrument or something. And I think still we fall into those traps of, of judging those people from different backgrounds. So, yeah, it, it's a very personal mission for me. And I think I, it's probably quite an obsession in many ways. But, uh, yeah, what's been lovely for me is since we published the book, um, is it really seems to strike a chord, if I could use that musical analogy, with uh, with many teachers. I think teacher leaders, of course, some of them are, will be of my age. So they do, I think, uh, resonate with some of my experiences because a lot of teachers, of course, come from working class backgrounds, but like me, um, have made that sort of trajectory, I suppose, into middle class life. You know, by definition, if you're a professor or you're a teacher, you have become middle class. Um, but we might come back into that. No, you're a really interesting point. And I think, you know, because I know, or, you know, I, it's hard to judge what what is uh, working class and, you know, where these boundaries lie, I think are really difficult for people. And an example of that is before the show, I did put out a, a kind of, you know, this is only you know, a, a Twitter survey, but I did put out, you know, just a poll, just asking teachers, and it might be self-selecting because, you know, I follow people who are teachers who have similar, all of those things, I'll, I'll, I'll caveat it with that. But it was about 50% of people came, teachers came back saying they considered that they grew up working class, which surprised me, I think, a little bit. Yeah, I, I suspect that is a bit of a self-selecting sample because all the studies that have looked into this, suggest that there is a majority that do come from more middle-class backgrounds um but there will be many that come from working class backgrounds who then by definition have become middle class like me so you're either um you've got people uh, who and many of them will be like me awkward climbers you know feel, who still feel a bit like where where are we you know we came from a certain background we've ended up slightly still not one where, not knowing where we are in some ways but um there are, I mean, we could have a whole podcast on class, of course, and in the book, we, we sort of try and define what we mean by that. Um, class, by the way, Nathan, it, it evolves. It's always there. So the, those those very old notions of working middle and upper class probably don't apply in the same way as they did back, you know, back then. But in my view, it is still there, right? And it, the reason we talk about, social class in the book a lot is divides in society aren't just about material money even though they are important they're also about our cultural assumptions and that's really important to recognize and acknowledge as a teaching profession and indeed as academics you know 
because that informs the way that we uh, that we teach. Um, the other thing about class is really interesting in this country is that many middle class people claim to be working class when they're clearly not, right? So this is replicated in all the uh, surveys, uh, the British uh, uh, Social Attitude Survey shows this um, every time it's done. That, um, and, I, and I think people sort of relate to being working class and often it's about their parents and it's about their, their history. But on all sorts of measures, they are quintessential middle class, right? But, but they still, and this is a British phenomenon, by the way, you don't get it in other countries. So there's something quite interesting going on there with class, isn't there? Um, but we're, I'm sure we'll talk about this as, 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 as we go with this. Yeah, you know, as I, there's a lot to unpick and there's like a lot of different things. I, I, I do find it so fascinating sort of talking through those different elements. And, we, you know, I do want to ask you, you know, when we get onto some of the, the different parts, particularly about how we can help teachers, about how, how that can work when, you, you know, maybe you haven't grown up experiencing the same things i just want to go back to the book you know just to give a, a sort of run through because you know we will uh, if you are listening uh, uh try and and hit some of these key themes within the book but the book's divided into four sections and those are section one which sets out kind of the overall arguments and considerations uh, of, of work in schools and their social um their, their societal and political context there's there's section two which is advice for practitioners in the classroom section three which is for the the kind of teacher leaders you mentioned there the head teachers heads of department um and 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 what they they could be thinking about and then section four as well which is about national policy in in england and the uk and and also abroad and so we've got quite a you know the book covers a lot of things there um but I wanted to get into, and I've realised I haven't really primed you for this question. I, 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 looking at the cover of the book, this has jumped out at me, um, which is, you know, this aspect of equity. And if I could describe the the, the front cover, it might be that some teachers are familiar with the, the, the image on the front cover of this difference between equality and equity. Yeah, so these these words, you know, we honestly, I had many sleepless nights as, as we were going to deadline on these words. You know, we purposely use that word equity rather than equality. In our view, um, and if you look at all the evidence on this, we live in really an unequal world, right? It's become more unequal. Um, and for many young children and young people, it's no fault of their own, right? So that they happen to have, have, have grown up in um, in a place where, you know, they faced issues around eating, food, you know, having food, having sleep, all the basic entitlements that perhaps in previous generations we took for granted have been eroded in some ways. So, um, you know, I would argue that, that, that we are living in, in more unequal times. And sadly, I suspect that's going to be the case for at least another decade, I suspect. Um, so we've gone backwards, you know, in many ways as a society. So I, I believe, uh, and this is quite controversial in some cases, I think, you know, I believe we should devote more time and resource to children from under-resourced backgrounds. Again, we might come back down to that term. Uh, by, the, by the way, for listeners, so I've used the term disadvantaged people all through my professional life. I'm now using the term children from under-resourced backgrounds because as, as soon as you use that term disadvantaged people you fall into deficit mindset you start to implicitly uh, you know unconsciously label that child as someone who's somehow inferior that we've got to change okay so language is really important in all this 
But equity, that word equity, we, we believe it's sort of part of that equity is fairness, right? It's about, in my view, leveling that playing field or, or, or learning field or whatever, however you want to phrase it. And, um, you know, the, the countries that do really well on this, you, you mentioned in the book, we do do a bit of an international review on this. And I think we're falling behind as a country, by the way, in the way that we hold schools to account. Um, is that, you know, we've got a very narrow inspection performance sort of accountability system, um, which we, with what other countries are doing now. Um, but, but, you know, what, what, what um, we need to think about as a school system is focusing on, on giving more resources to those children who need it most. And so when you look at nations like the Scandinavian nations, for example, and they're very different, they're more equal than us, they're smaller than us, there's all sorts of caveats to these international comparisons. But what they do is they focus on equity first, and excellence comes from that, right? So if you if you do well for children from under-resourced backgrounds, in my view, all your children will flourish. We get it the wrong way around, I think. We, you know, If you hear politicians, they talk about excellence, they have these sort of very um, narrow views, in my view, of, of what that means and and we have a system that's failed basically if you look if you look at any statistics that that me and others do on on the gaps that still persist uh, for all the rhetoric for all the work we do we are still facing huge divides and as you'll know i'm sure um, many children are not coming to school um, uh, as often as they should do now we are facing a retention and recruitment crisis in teaching you know, I hate to press all your listeners, but I think the time has come to review the fundamentals of our education system so that it's fit for all, so it's inclusive for all. And equity is a key part of that. Um, and I'm going I'm to push you on a, a couple of bits there, you know, and this is things that I hear, and you know, as I say, you know, I, I work in a, you know, a challenging management with, with, as you say, under-resourced, struggling at times, young people. But um, it's often said, I'm thinking how best to phrase this, you know, you mentioned the American dream. We, we talk often about meritocracies and we, we, we paint this picture of, you know, well, you know, if you work hard, you'll do well, this individualism of it. And um, sometimes, and some teachers, are, you know, and, and certainly uh, people who I meet in the community will question me on, you know, uh, why we are, giving more to people who maybe they perceive as not deserving of it or there's a kind of moral weight to it of you know the, the, a kind of negativity of like you know like because you, you've somehow deserved that does that make sense you know what is the is there then in in all of this evidence uh, an argument against that individualism of the American dream, or that doesn't work for us as a country? Yeah, I mean, this is something I've been fascinated by for many years, you know, because in the studies of social mobility, we look at different countries, we look at different places in different countries. You know, where are the more mobile countries, um, places? And by the way, people are interested in that concept of social mobility, that, that measures the likelihood of you changing social class or income compared with your parents. And the the more mobile a society, the more it suggests that there's more equality of opportunity, right? So um, what we find in those international comparisons is really interesting. It's, it's, 
it's the Scandinavian nations, it's Australia, Canada, who do better than places like the United States, United Kingdom. Ironically, United States, of course, home of the American dream. Um, so, so it's the countries that appear to embrace more collective culture. So, you know, if you go to Scandinavia, and I do lots of presentations to uh, school leaders in um, the Scandinavian countries, always fascinating because they actually are struggling with some of the issues we're struggling with increasingly as their societies become more diverse. Um, but what's really interesting to me when I go and present that you can taste it in the culture there. They're far more uh, gender, by the way, uh, equality. You can really see that, which I think we're, we're still years behind on that. Um, but they also have this real almost um, obsession about not being individualistic, you know, so even being called number one is a is, causes real anxiety in some of the meetings that I've um, uh, done with teachers over there. It's fascinating to me. Um, so the countries that do really well on social mobility, on the idea that your background should determine what happens to you in life, um, are those, in my view, that have a more collective notion of success. And I get really frustrated with this, David, because, um, you know, when I do my own life story, it's another thing that I explore with the um, pupils and sometimes trainee teachers when I do sessions with them. You know, my life is another example of this. It was other people that helped me, you know. So I, I'm deeply suspicious of people that say my success is all down to my individual talent. Usually for 99.99% .99 of us, it usually is that people have helped us at key transitions in, in our lives. Certainly happened for me. And, and I think there's something actually, as we've, we all must remember in these debates, and of course teachers do this all the time, but if you can help someone in a key point in their lives, right, to get them through that transition, to help them think about uh, the choices, it might be, you know, it might be sixth form choices, it might be, you know, apprenticeship versus university. These are the key things that you can do actually as, as an adult is, is help them out. And everyone, to my, to, apart from a few geniuses perhaps, we are all the products of some collective, you know, um, grounding, if you like. And, and so it's really important this, and I, I talk about it a lot because these values are so important. And, and, I, and I feel like we bought into the American dream um, version, if you like, of society. And I would go as far to say that modern capitalism, you know, it's, it's getting big, it's important though because school, the context of schools is this. Uh, the modern capitalist, uh, neoliberal sort of, um, uh, you know, system is, in my view, broken. You know, that promise, the promise that anyone can do well, um, anyone, the, the idea that anyone can get a roof over their head and pay and have a decent life, that has gone. And I think there's going to be some really interesting political debates over the over the next uh, decades on this. Um, I, I mention all this because it's important for schools, because what all the politicians do is say, yeah, we're going to allow inequality to rise as long as we have some sort of social mobility. But by the way, the job of ensuring equality of opportunity comes down to schools. We're not going to pay them much to do this, but it's their responsibility. And if it doesn't happen, we're going to blame teachers for it. right? And we're going to create an accountability system that basically assumes that schools can solve all of society's ills. And that's why I think where we are at the moment, that's why I think we're having so many problems. So um, 
a lot of the stuff that I do, of course, and we'll talk about some of the practical tips for individual teachers and teacher leaders, are really important. But there are these more systematic uh, debates I think we need to have. And to be frank, I think we should get on the front foot more as a profession and say, look, you know, well, here's the evidence. We've got people like Lee producing these, these, these politicians. You've got to be a bit more realistic about what schools can achieve or you've got to fund them at rates that would enable them to address some of the things that you want them to address. Um, yeah, you know, I'm just reading through my notes because we are skirting all over topics at the moment. And it's, it's as I say, it's, it's a complex but incredibly interesting thing, very well structured in, you know, in the book as it takes us through. And I just wanted to pull on one thread there just as uh, while we're talking about sort of different countries and but also the complexity of this you talk about the where the you know possibly the blame gets attributed or where the expectation on the work gets attributed there's a part in the introduction that talks about sort of these polarized debates and it mentions uh, New York uh, City Schools Chancellor Joel Klein saying you'll never fix poverty in America until you fix education in America and the counter argument back that you'll never fix education in America until you fix poverty in America in America and this kind of polarization of of how we deal with the problems with with teachers unfortunately at the moment I, I I do feel myself in the middle of this do you think we are similar in the UK at the moment where there is a you know a divide because I hear things about social mobility where it's you know kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps but I also hear the the, the other sides where where possibly I sit more, which is, you know, we need to help, we need to restructure, we need to put in the support. Are, are, are we divided on this? I think one of the fears I have with all these debates is we fall into false dichotomies uh, in education. So that, that quote I had from Joel Klein in the New York schools debate, you know, probably 20 years ago, and it's replicated here over this country since really, the, I suppose, the Michael Gove reforms, but also some of the new Labour reforms of the late 90s. Um, and, and there are people that would say, you know, um, as, as Klein was saying, you know, we won't solve poverty until we uh, solve education, right? Um, I think it's a, a combination of the two things, right? You've got to in my view, address the profound inequalities in society. So, for example, I would say that we need an early years system. And, and thankfully, the politicians seem to be coming back around to this after decimating uh, the early years support. We have. You know, in the late 90s, under New Labour, there was the creation of things called Sure Start centres, right? Uh, children's centres. We were ahead of the world in, in terms of that early year support in many ways. It wasn't perfect. We then had the austerity era where um, those all that uh, infrastructure, all that effort was was decimated. Right. It, 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 it fell apart. And now, 25 years later, we're now having debates again. It's so frustrating. Um, so, you know, schools are in catch up from day one, because if you look at the statistics, you know, it's about 18 months development difference between someone from a, you know, again, under-resourced background compared to someone from a more privileged background at age five, right? So already you've got these huge divides. And so I think it's completely unfair to then say to the school system, you are going to address these um, uh, divides. Um, because remember, even at age five, children have, have, have already developed considerably. We also know, by the way, that 
two graduates with exactly the same grades from exactly the same university, the same degree, the one from a more privileged background will earn more in the workplace, they will progress faster in the workplace. There is something else going on, right, post the education system. And I, I do some of my work is about challenging employers, about against some of the social class biases and barriers within the workplace. So schools can't do it on their own. Universities can't do it on their own. That is absolutely crystal clear. Um, but I think this is a false dichotomy because for me, we can up it and we, you know, the book in a sense is two arguments. It's one, let's create a fairer system for schools that actually measures them in a way that's realistic. But secondly, as a school system, as teachers, as a profession, let's up our game because my view is we are creating some inside barriers uh, inadvertently that we could address. So we've got to, you know, we've got to up our game, but um, we've got to we've got to also address some of those inequalities outside school base as well. Um, and uh, you know, in the book, as you Sorry, say, these are you know, long you answers, aren't they? It, you know, incredibly interesting, though. And, you know, I can see people sort of commenting in. Uh, I, I will try and get to them. You know, Maxine there said, you know, such a good point. Love the book. Uh, I see we've got Mr. Shu in as well. Um, you know, if, if you are listening live, send those questions in, you know, share your thoughts, um, because it is, you know, a, an incredibly interesting as i say and rich topic now but the book you're advocating for as you say this kind of equity-based education and you base it on four principles and i wonder if you can just explain a little about what those four principles are that you see would would help the under-resourced and working class pupils we've been talking about so as you say there's four principles and, and i guess we covered a couple of those already it's equity uh, not equality so that's doing more for the children that need uh, it most. And, and by the way, there's, there's other evidence that so shows that teachers can have more impact on those on young children, young people, uh, because there's so much more untapped potential, if you like. Um, so there's equity, not equality. And then we talk about capacity, not deficit mindset, uh, you know, and we might get into that in more detail, but that essentially that's starting to reflect on our own cultural norms in classrooms. There's a lot of things we do that aren't made explicit for those children who aren't um, developed in that way in the, in the household. So th there's lots of research um, over the years, a lot of sociological research ar around the differences in the way that children are developed in the home environment. And, and those from middle-class backgrounds on average just, just are much better prepared to advocate for themselves in the classroom. Interestingly, um, so there's some research around uh, again, you've got to be really careful with these generalizations, but there is a, a, an individualism associated with some of those middle class norms. You know, it's, it's, it's self, it's advocating for the self, whereas in some working class cultures, there is more of an interdependency. So you're used to working together in more ways. And so there's a critique, actually, of some of our classroom practices in that we tend, tend to, in some cases, accentuate the individual, individual in the class, right? And if you think about the classroom, it's quite an unusual environment in many ways, you know. Um, so I think challenging some of those cultural norms, but also if, if we're not going to change them, at least being explicit so that every child understands them. Um, so that's really thinking about capacity rather than deficit uh, mindset. And a part of that is celebrating the, the achievements, the cultural achievements of those from working class backgrounds. We don't do enough of that in the classroom it's an incredibly alienating system to be honest if you're not from a particular middle class 
type background, I, I would argue. And then the third and fourth principles um, are important. And, and one of them is treating every child as an individual, a unique uh, individual. We, we, we cite a lot of research around um, the fact that, of course, children, it's not just about social class, it's about their gender, it's about their ethnicity, it's also about their additional needs, perhaps, um, where they're born, whether if they're summer born, you know, there's, there's so many factors that shape the learning of those children. The, the, the universal challenge for teachers, of course, is that, you know, what you'd want to do is individualised feedback modelling for each of those pupils in the classroom alongside group activities, of course. Teachers never have the time to do that. But we, we discussed that idea of, um, you know, delivering individualised feedback in the classroom. I'm obsessed with that, um, that notion, by the way. That goes all the way to my days developing the uh, Education Development Foundation toolkit, the Sutton Trust sort of toolkit that, yeah, where we, we reviewed all the research with my great friend, Steve Higgins, a professor at Durham, and we recreated that guide, which has now become a sort of worldwide sort of popular guide. It's, it's a review of research and best bets for teachers. The thing that came up really highly in that, in terms of most effective practices, was effective feedback, right? We all know this as teachers. It's hard to do. Um, and one of the other reasons why we talk about individualised feedback is, again, trying to be very conscious of some of the stereotyping and labelling that does happen in schools. Uh, and because we have a system, we have this sort of false system of a pupil premium child or a free school meals child versus a non-pupil premium child, right? It, 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 it makes us sort of um, subconsciously, I feel, that we see children as almost this sort of binary divide, right? When actually the reality is there's a continuum of disadvantage, of course, in that classroom. So individualized uh, sort of feedback, treating children as, as unique learners. I know it sounds obvious, but it's something that's really important. And then finally, it's celebrating all forms of human talent. You know, we have a system that really accentuates that ability to memorize um, and, uh, facts and to analyze in a very sort of academic way um, the material. It's not you know, all that, but it's really um, uh, weighted heavily to that. Um, uh, and of course, we all know as adults that the things that enable people to get on in life is other things as well as that, you know, creativity, practical uh, skills, um, life skills, you know, social emotional um, skills. Um, so other countries are really thinking about this um, in, in how they um, value children. And, and by the way, things like well-being is now being looked at increasingly in, in other school systems. Um, what, what is the well-being of the children and indeed the teachers in those schools? Um, so a, a much broader, if you like, conceptualization of what we mean by human talent. Um, but those are the four principles that we articulate in the, in the book. Um, and, and I do want to, you know, uh, after the, the, the news in the second half of the show, I want to kind of get into the, the, the kind of specifics about what teachers can do, what schools as organisations can do, and, and, and all of those bits and pieces. But I'm really interested at the moment about that kind of, you know, as you talk about um, some of those things, particularly around the sort of this um, capacity deficit mindset. That we, that we might have fallen in and I find it you know your, your descriptions of you know using this term under-resourced rather than um, disadvantaged and and the way we potentially um, look at 
the the system that we're in, the middle class system. I know in the book it talks about um, you know uh, things like explaining the rules of the, the the game, for want of a better word, explicitly to some of our young people. But but we are talking sometimes about what is a middle class game, and and I wondered your thoughts, you know, within that on, uh, and I would describe my realization somewhat in, in in a previous role where we we put together a a, a list of things and and this was at a primary school level uh, where of, of things we wanted all our young people uh, to have and and I sat back and, and and looked at this list of things and and some of them were you know across the board but some of them I realized I, I you know we'd essentially got together and written a a, a list of middle class childhood for want of a better word, and that's what we'd come up with as cultural capital. And how does that fit into then this equity model of of not looking at um, working classness as lesser? I think this is so fundamental, you know, to the issues. I I suppose what 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 i'm realizing in this book it is a reflection of my own career in a sense you know because i've been involved in so many programs and government initiatives and working with schools over many years and i i think for me it, it's the realization that it's actually the fundamentals that we've got to look at right it's the fact that we value as you're saying a particular part of society um and implicitly saying that's superior to everything else and i just really challenge that assumption i do think there are things around what we might think of as middle class um culture that are important you know uh, and that 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 um do get people on in in life so we've got to make those things explicit more explicit but we've got to do it in a neutral way right we've got to say um to, to those from more working class backgrounds or under-resourced backgrounds, um, we know you come with different cultural traditions, right? If you want to get on in, I don't know, a banking sector or the corporate sector or whatever it is, then here are the things you're going to have to do, right? Um, and, um, you know, now you can choose what you want to do because actually you might have to leave the community you're from to make it in those industries, right? So you're going to pay a penalty for it, but you might get a few more earnings. You might be pulled away from your local community, right? There's, there's not, it's not all uh, a positive, but here is your choice. And again, it comes back to what I was saying earlier. For me, my work is all around making sure that young people choose what they do, right? And that is irrespective of their background. But that doesn't necessarily mean we should all aspire to being famous or rich or whatever it is. Um, and certainly loads of studies would suggest that that is not the secret of happiness. right? Although, although it's really key, I think, here, because we've got such an unequal society to say that everyone needs a certain amount of resource right, to, to live by. And I think that's being eroded. I think that's a different um, issue. But... Um, Coming back to your core point, I mean, one one of the other projects I'm involved in, I think this really um, reflects this sort of, it is, and it is subtle and nuanced, these discussions, right? Um, I'm doing a bit of work with civil servants at the moment. We're doing a sort of guide for the working class civil servant for the civil service. Civil service is a very uh, middle class culture. And one of the uh, young female civil servants, really interesting, we've got a chapter called The Art of Exaggeration, okay? And 
what she was saying was that um, so she's from a sort of work class girl, and there was also a gender thing going on here as well. She'd shared an internal job application with her um, more middle class colleagues, and they all said to her, "Look, you're you're just you're not winning it enough. You're not exaggerating what you've done enough to get this promotion." And she just literally documented what she'd done, right? You know, um, and what was interesting for her was there, because there was the official rules of the civil service, you apply, you do your application, but then there's the unwritten, it's often called the unwritten curriculum, you know, um, the unwritten rules. And all these other uh, more middle-class people had all developed this art of exaggeration, and, it's, and it is a real skill. And the Etonians, of course, do this better than anyone, right? So you've got to exaggerate to a point if you exaggerate too much of course then people don't believe you right you do it often in a self-deprecating way but you do advocate for yourself there's a real there's a real art to it um and that for me is an example in the workplace of what i'm talking about but it, it also is the case in education so if you observe classrooms there are those young children who will already be grounded in those sort of the art of uh, advocacy of exaggeration all these stuff and it just means you do better in in the environments that we've we've created so i think there's a, there's within these debates there's a dilemma right there's how to so for those civil servants what we were saying was look to what extent should we challenge the system so that you you know so for example accents is an issue with, with the civil service you, you're, you, it, the perception is if you have a certain accent, you are likely to get on better than if you have a more regional accent, right? Um, so the question there is, you know, to what extent do you try and challenge that system or do you modify your own accent to get on in the current system as it is? And that's one of the real dilemmas in these debates. So, I, you know, what I'm doing at the moment with, with my book, and I've been presenting to trusts across the country, to try, you know, it, it's, it's amazing, actually, the, the response to this. It really seems to have struck a chord. And what I'm saying is that I've got some initial ideas around what we should do to address some of these issues. But what I'm getting from teachers and its leaders, its classroom teachers, is really, really interesting reflections on this. And, and I'm hoping over the next six months a year that we can develop some toolkits for classroom teachers to think about, to reflect on these things. But we'll probably come, come to this. Um, you know, what are the practical responses to some of these things that we know um, uh, persist in our system? No, I, you know, I find that so interesting, you know, particularly when you talk about, you know, uh, uh, the, the understanding things from, a, 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 you know, a different point of view, accents particularly, which is something that, you know, I I, I do get fixated on. In, interestingly, you know, my, my, my dad was more, more Welsh, uh, from Wales, uh, doesn't have an accent. Um, lost it uh, uh, you know deliberately um, but one of the things I find you know I grew up in a, a town that was div very clearly divided I grew up in in Cambridge where it is town and gown and I was the town and we used to look across to you know the Et Etonians in the gown and my sister very still does make fun of me that when I go to interview I dress in my version of what um, a, a more wealthy person does and I look like I should be on the punts and she calls me Scudamores which is one of the punting companies because I'm wearing chinos and a blue shirt because that's what I've seen as as the the, the kind of typical that that's how you get along and you you dress in a certain way and you look it and I've somehow adopted these rules but my question is then 
Um, am I? Are we? Is is that the problem? Are we perpetuating the model then by losing my my dad losing his accent or my myself losing my my sense of dress to dress more like a, a, a someone punting on the River Cam in Cambridge? Uh, am I perpetuating the problem then? Yeah, I, I, and these these are the fascinating debates that I, that I'm having at the moment. You know, I've lost my accent. I, I was from West. I, I, I had a, some when I went to Sheffield University. For, but yeah, people would call me a Cockney, even though that was not quite true. Even though I'm a West Ham fan, actually. But um, I, but I did have a real twang. You know, I was. You could tell I was from London. That's gone. I I I've you know, uh, and I don't think I've done it consciously. Uh, you know, sometimes when I give talks, people say they're very sad that I've lost lost my my accent. Um, I think a lot of us who I'd call awkward climbers have done that because it, it, it's probably we're trying to fit into the system that we have come into. And I can tell you, if 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 there's one middle class profession that's even more middle class than teachers, it's professors. I can tell you that for sure. Um, so I do think we all we all try and fit in with the system and dress codes it's really interesting you say that so when i do my talks to trusts around the country and indeed in other countries but particularly uh, in england i would say and to some extent the uk there's a bit of a sort of corporate thing going on so if you if you if you meet the senior ceo and even the terminology now of trusts actually it's it sort of bought into that sort of more corporate sort of culture if you like and um you know, there was the day when, you know, if you look back at the old pictures of teachers in the 60s and 70s, there was definitely a more alternative look to some of those teachers. Um, but then I think it's, it's, you've got to get the balance right here, right? You know, I think you've got to be smart. You've got to turn up on time. All the things that might be associated perhaps with more middle class cultures. Um, I think there are some things we can all benefit from, right? You know, um, so so I think there are things that I would say are good, um, but it's really um, nuanced. This, you know, and I, as a professor now, I think you know, when I do my talks, of course, I, I sometimes think, well, okay, what am I going to wear? Should I should I replicate the suit? I used to wear suits. I don't anymore. Interestingly, I've sort of, you know, I've almost like said, okay, I'm now a 55 year old professor. I've just got to just go with who I am. <laughs> Uh, but it's taken a lifetime for me to to do that, right? If you're in a younger, I think if, if I was in my younger career phase, to be honest, I would probably be wearing a suit because I think that's what you need to do. So, um, so I think there there is some um, some interesting stuff about ties, by the way. So it used to be the case that, for example, bankers would wear ties. You know, if you were the if you were see that now um, you don't wear a tie. Um, it's really interesting, these sort of uh, cultural assumptions that we make about people. Um, there's, by the way, there's some historical stuff in, in here as well. We, we talk in the book about the, uh, the, the tradition of calling males teachers sir and females miss, right? Um, now, this goes back a long time. Um, and, and we actually challenge that. We say, well, you don't, you can be called actually by your first name in the classroom. Because um, that is basically, if you think about it, it's quite sexist, those sort of norms. Um, but you, as long as you keep the authority and it's an authentic authority with your children 
or your young people, I think you can uh, challenge some of those slightly rigid Victorian um, norms. And, and there are many, by the way, there are many Victorian norms that we still adhere to in the school system. So um, one of the things I'd love to do, because we, yeah, that book's quite short. We wanted that book to be something that a, a trainee teacher could dip into, a trust leader could look at, right? But, so it's quite short, actually, if you look at it. Um, I think over the next, probably, it's probably going to take a few years. I'd love to, to um, crystallize some of these details right you know so so we can actually provide more practical help for teachers because one of the things i fear is that particularly those going into the profession at the moment we're in this bizarre situation where as i said we've gone to that sort of govian extreme of saying poverty isn't, isn't an excuse now of course i would agree that we want high expectations for all our children irrespective of their backgrounds and one of the reasons why i use that term under resource backgrounds at the same time We've got to, you know, acknowledge the reality of inequality outside those school gates. At the moment, we have a training regime for teachers where we hardly mention the word disadvantage. So many teachers come into the profession without hardly any grounding on the fact that many of their children in their classroom will be struggling with profound issues outside the classroom. It just seems madness to me. So I do initial sessions with uh, many um, trainees, and I think we should have a national module on this. I mean, it, it, it astounds me that we are sending teachers into the classroom without any grounding on, one, a knowledge of those inequalities, and two, a sense of some of the things that I'm talking about, you know, that there are biases you need to be aware of, um, that, that children, you know, that you need to think about the backgrounds of your children. The idea that poverty is almost should be ignored, I think makes no sense to me. Um, so yeah, so I think these are things that are, are really pro profoundly important. And uh, Maxine there just echoing, just saying, you know, really good point, seeing it this a lot with ECTs, um, sort of following on from, from your points there. You know, I do, I, I find it interesting, but I think schools, you know, I would add to that schools, I think, have a part to play. And, I, you know, I know a lot of teachers who maybe haven't walked around the block outside their school and or haven't, you know, really been outside the school gates to see what what is the other side of the fence. And we, we, we do run into a risk there, I think, of maybe making assumptions about what is coming through the gates and you know how how uh, our young people are you know living outside of the 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 walls of the classroom i you know i i want to get into kind of the, the 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 some you know the practical the tips the things to take away we're going to pop to the news and uh if you're with us uh, have those questions in mind you can start typing them now and um lee we will uh, get into the nitty-gritty and that on just the other side of this okay great <laughs> This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. School summer holidays are often a hot topic, but they made the news again in The Guardian as leaders in Wales appear to be considering changes. According to reports, Wales's minority Labour administration wants to shrink summer breaks from six weeks to five and eventually reduce it to four weeks. The plan would see the time added to half-term breaks in October and May. 
The proposal would equalise the length of terms and break the connection with Easter by fixing the timing of the spring break regardless of when the religious festival falls. The newspaper says the plans follow research by the government which suggests that parents struggle to organise and pay for childcare over the summer. Plaid Cymru, which supports the proposal, said in a statement that the current calendar was outdated as it was designed a long time ago and that some families find the summer break very long and impacting negatively on their well-being. However, the article also points out that evidence of the harm to learning from school holidays is unclear, as much of the evidence comes from the United States, where summer holidays can be up to 12 weeks long rather than the six to seven weeks in the UK. John Hattie, Professor of Education at the University of Melbourne, said the effects from school holidays are very small and there is little reason to believe that the length of the school year has much effect at all. A study from 2019 that looked at pupils from primary schools in an area of high deprivation in Scotland and England found no effect on reading skills. In Northern Ireland, schools typically have eight weeks off in the summer, but generally have results in exams that are better than those in England or Wales. However, a 2022 study did find evidence of worsening mental health in some age groups over long summer breaks. Surveys done in Wales found 60% of parents said they were quite happy with the school year as it is. In 2013, then Education Secretary Michael Gove gave schools in England the power to choose the timing of holidays, but most schools kept the six weeks. The BBC News website reports on the Beyond Ofsted Inquiry. The inquiry is chaired by former schools minister Lord Knight and is funded by the National Education Union. The report from the inquiry recommends that schools should instead be responsible for their own improvement plans. Ofsted has responded by repeating its previous statement that inspections are needed to ensure a high quality education. The inquiry said that Ofsted was now seen by many as toxic and not fit for purpose, and in need of major reform. The removal of single word judgments was also recommended, and this echoed another report on school improvement released earlier by the Institute for Public Policy Research, which also called for narrative style judgments rather than single words. The Beyond Ofsted inquiry recommended stopping Ofsted from having direct contact with schools, and instead schools should draw up their own improvement plans which would make them accountable to parents and the wider local community. Lord Knight, speaking to the BBC, said Ofsted created a culture of fear in our schools. His report also said that Ofsted had become under-resourced for the high-stakes job expected of it. A spokesperson for Ofsted said nine out of ten schools say inspections help them to improve. In related news, the current Chief Inspector of Schools, Amanda Spielman, has written in her final annual report about parents being increasingly willing to challenge school rules in England. She described the unwritten contract between home and school as fractured and that it will take time to repair. The report is broadly positive but draws attention to a shift in behaviour, attendance and attitudes to education since the pandemic, describing it as leaving a troublesome legacy. Full details of her comments can be found across media outlets. Teach First has celebrated its 20th anniversary with three former Prime Ministers 
praising the charity's work in tackling education inequalities. According to Teach First's own website newsfeed, the charity has recruited more than 16,000 teachers to work in disadvantaged areas across England. Teach First CEO Russell Horby reaffirmed the charity's mission to help Britain's most disadvantaged children to achieve their full potential. Finally, student immigration data has been released, with Home Secretary James cleverly stating the biggest drivers of immigration to the UK are students and healthcare workers. He further commented that this was testament to our world-leading university sector. According to data, Indian nationals account for over one quarter of all sponsored study grants, followed by Chinese nationals. The education sector relies heavily on students applying to UK universities for significant funding. But there is also political pressure to reduce net immigration. Any plans to make changes to the current system will be monitored carefully. Although for now, the focus remains on illegal migration rather than legal routes. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out. With Teachers Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Swansea and Teachers Talk Radio. On this Twilight Show, we are talking about equity in education with Lee Elliott Major uh, about the book uh, Equity in Education, Leveling the Playing Field of Learning. And it is, a to say, a practical guide for teachers. And that is where you find us at this point in the show if you are joining us live. If you are joining us live now, Remember, you can find this as a podcast, as a download, iTunes, uh, Amazon, and also you can ask your Alexa. I won't demonstrate that now or my Alexa will start talking. You can find all of our uh, previous shows at ttradio.org where there is a little search bar. So you could type in equity into that and it will pull up all of our shows that have that topic in the description. Um, Welcome back, Lee. Hi, good to be back. Um, and so I did say, you know, we, we, we're going to try and get into some uh, some of the practical tips. Uh, Maxine has uh, sent in a question. I think this is going to be part of the second uh, stage of this, Maxine, because I want to focus on teachers first of all. But she's asking the question. Uh, she says, really interested in this aspiration, yet appreciating the barriers face discussion. What advice would you give around this? Well, we're in an advice section, Maxine, and we we kind of try and. Uh, pinpoint that question for you as we go through but I wanted to ask you first um, Lee um, from a uh, this is from a kind of individual teachers point of view uh, and this is around there is a quote in the book um, from Dylan William that says the hardest thing you can do as a teacher is teach someone not like you I should also say uh, Dylan William on the front cover here of the book comprehensive and groundbreaking he calls it which you know I would I would agree with entirely with him again you know, on another thing. Uh, but, um, you know, most teachers, we've said, are, are from broadly middle-class backgrounds or, or at least now living middle-class lives as teachers. And and you've mentioned before the news there that they receive little or no preparation in, in, in how they might understand uh, under-resourced and working-class pupils or disadvantaged or whichever 
you know, blunt tool their school is using PP, free school meals, to, to define the, the young people that we're talking about. But what can the teachers themselves do then um, to, to help start addressing this? So we do start to talk about this in the book. And as I said earlier, I do feel like I'm on a bit of a journey with this because I think some of the advice we give is quite broad, actually. And and some of the sessions I've been having with teachers, we start to get into the nitty gritty a bit more, uh, which I'll come to. Um, But in the book, we we, we just, one of the things, an obvious thing is that that I I feel that uh, groups of teachers should reflect on um, the social biases that the research shows that exist in the classroom. And um, yeah, one simple way of doing that is, is um, uh, comparing your judgments as a teacher with some form of formative, you know, test or assessment you, you can do. Um, you probably want to do that as school wide, actually. And some of the schools I've worked with, it's always really interesting when you see the results, right? And um, uh, often they will replicate that that more generic result that you know those children from under-resourced backgrounds tend to be judged uh, as having lower achievement than the test would suggest. Um, I think alongside that, you know, and you you mentioned it earlier. I do think, and I, I'm really conscious with all this stuff that teachers are up against it um, in the workload. So I, you know, one of the questions I often get asked is, Lee, what what to stop doing to do all this? I, I do think there are some things you probably should think about prioritizing, I guess, but um, it, it's knowing those children's background. So those, those biases that we document in the, in the research literature, it's, you know, I talk about working class backgrounds. There's a number of characteristics associated with underrating. We're a research project right now on this, actually. Um, and so we find that children, for example, summer-born children, I'm a summer-born uh, child, tend to be underrated compared to their actual. We think anyway that um, teachers misconstrue um, immaturity for lack of achievement actually. Um, so so again, be aware of your summer born children in the class, you know, particularly in the primary school years. Um, those children that have some behavioral conduct problems, um, again, tend to be underrated um, because, again, you're confusing perhaps behaviour with actual um, achievement. And and some of the reflections I've had from individual teachers since giving the talks, interestingly, are about some of the more, I guess, strict behaviour rules that we now have in schools. And a reflection that actually the way that different children respond to this can be informed by their backgrounds. And so I think we just need to be a bit sensitive to that. You know, so some teachers, one session I did, they were saying they felt that those children from particular working class backgrounds tended to close down very quickly when they were being reprimanded in a certain way. Whereas those from more middle class backgrounds were were able to advocate themselves, engage in a way that, that sort of enabled them to sort of still progress right so i just think we need to think through some of the policies that we now see in the system um, in terms of the different backgrounds um, the other thing we find is those children who have parents without degrees tend to be underrated um, compared to those with uh, you know with parents with, with who are graduates um, so i think 
for me, there's 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 sort of understanding the class a bit more. So it's not just PP versus non-PP. Um, the other thing, by the way, uh, we ask in in our survey of this for this study um, whether teachers think the parents are interested in school or not. And you find again a very strong association with those children that the teachers think have parents who are not interested in school. They tend to underrate those children. So I think there's something about just having a deeper understanding about the backgrounds of your children. And, and we explore in the book things like home visits. I mean, again, you have to be really careful with these and who you do that with, because you can't do it for everyone. But there's some lovely tricks I've seen in the system where, you know, when a child, for example, joins secondary school, you do a home visit and you actually give the parents the choice of various um, classes. Uh, so one could be I know, an introduction to the school. You, you give the, and, and you do it in a way that, that suggests they got to do something. And this is a way of engaging with the parents, by the way. Um, and so um, for an individual teacher, of course, you do do that parent teacher meeting. Right. I think we should change the way we use those meetings. At the moment, I have to say, as someone who's been through them, I'm, I'm a father. My children are quite grown up now. They're not particularly useful, I have to tell you. And teachers, again, aren't really don't get much training in how to work with parents. I think we should flip those sessions that we have and think about how can we help the parents help their children in some very focused, targeted ways. Um, uh, so, so that's something I, I think we should explore some of the, those things. So, um, so there's lots of things I think a teacher can do um, at the classroom level. And as I said, I'm getting some really interesting feedback from teachers. So a lot of them talk about language, funny enough. Um, and the fact that they have changed their accents to, um, to, 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 to be that sort of accent that they think they should have as a teacher, interestingly enough. Um, and the language they use in the classroom. Um, and indeed, just celebrating working class achievement. So I list in the book um, many of the amazing things, actually, that working class people have contributed to British and other cultures. Um, we just don't do enough, in my view, to explain to all of our pupils that some of these people came from backgrounds that were similar to theirs, right? There tends to be this assumption that everyone is a success. And I know I'm probably exaggerating a little here, but it tends to be loaded with those sort of middle class assumptions. And you know, listening to your news bulletin, it's it sort of, you know, it, it's really interesting to me because most of the people in charge of the policies are quintessentially middle class people, right? Who come from middle class backgrounds. So there's all sorts of loaded assumptions about how we do Ofsted inspections, for example um how we rate schools um, and one of the problems we have with low social mobility in this country is most of the people that shape the policies in education come from very middle class backgrounds and i find it quite patronizing i have to say some of the things that are said about our education system from and i'm not going to name any names but um but you know there is that uh, assumption at the heart of those people it, 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 at the top of the education system, in my view. Uh, and I suppose Michael Gove would really uh, embody that uh, idea, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I think we need to change it. If we don't change it, I can guarantee you this we'll be having another radio show in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time, and the disadvantaged 
or the under-resourced will still be deemed failures, in my view, unless we change some of these fundamentals. I'm sorry, but I, I see it as stark as that. Um, so, yeah, that's where I stand on them. But, but individual teachers can do things, but I think what I'd love to do is work with teachers over the coming months and year to really maybe crystallize some of those things so we can we can guide those in the early years or the primary school years or those in secondary schools and beyond you know with some really practical things but um but those are some of the things we we, we suggest in the book no i yeah, i i find i find it really interesting and i you know i find some of the things that you describe there is as you you know i think you said you know really on in the show about actually this this kind of approach of treat Teach, treating people uh, as individuals and that some of this stuff actually uh, whatever the um whatever the barrier actually a lot of this stuff could apply in different in different ways to to, to whatever um the, the barrier whether it being that they are under-resourced or, or it coming from another area through treating them as individuals i wanted to focus in on something there you said and i had uh, actually during the news had, had had your book open at the working class assets uh, page um, and, and, and as I was just kind of flicking through and, and, and listening to the news and there, there is a thing that worries me slightly about it and that is um, I'm trying to think how to how to achieve some of that um, appreciation I guess some of that uh, cultural capital that can come from to, from any class, but without it being uh, maybe pastiche, without it being cringy. Does that make sense? Without it being bolt on, um, you know, or, or, or is it a matter of just kind of highlighting some of these these people, like you say, David Hockney, Tracy Emin, um, uh, you know? Uh, I guess my question is how how did yeah. Cringy is the word I'm going to use. How do we do it without it seeming mm. inauthentic? Authentic. There we go. That's the word I was looking for. Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and to be honest, when I, I wrote some of that stuff, um, it was really, you know, here's a taste of what it could be like. But even when I wrote that, I was worried that it could look a bit toxic, right? You know, here's some, here's a few working class oics that have done well. Let's just add them on. Um, you're absolutely right. It, it has to be done in an authentic way. But you know, uh, you know, I talk about Dickens in in there. You know, I mean, and uh, you know, a lot of the books have that social class divide as, as part of the uh, theme. You know, there's many characters in Dickens models that that are social climbers, and actually, there's lots of interesting characters that realise. That the world isn't just about social class. Yeah, there's, there's some really interesting stuff in Dickens about you know people who realise that it's not all about social class, and and then you do lose stuff if you become you know part of that in that era uh, more, more more middle class. So I think it has to be done in an authentic way. You're absolutely right. I, I I think the other thing I would say is what we try to do in the book is be intersection intersectional in in our set in and how we define what we call working class. Um, and that means it can be those also who happen to be female or happen to be black or whatever. So, you know, it, I, I do worry about the sort of, um, some of the media debates about white working class boys specifically, uh, because it kind of 
it feels like it's putting that one group against other groups who are also marginalized. So we, I think we have to think about it in an inclusive way. But things like, you know, I mean, I did physics, I did a physics degree. You know, Faraday is one of the greatest physicists we've ever produced, came from incredibly sort of humble background. I think it is worth mentioning it, but doing it in a, in a very careful, sensitive and authentic way. Um, so we, we talk about a lot of people there, but those are, those are sort of examples. I think there's also bits of the curriculum already where, you know, you could um, uh, just introduce this. It's not necessarily adding it on, but I, I do know what you mean about this because I think there's a sort of slight cringe. I, I think that's probably the right word, actually. Mm. And it's, it, I think we're all, particularly in Britain, we're all really sensitive about this stuff, right? We're all class conscious still. Um, so I think it, it is doing it in, in, in a way that's, that, that's not patronising. Um, but but I, I'm absolutely convinced you have to do this because there are many pupils in your class who, if you're in a school that is genuinely comprehensive, right, who will come from different cultures. And by the way, you know, I'm, I'm focusing here on social class. I think it's also thinking about other cultures as well. Um, you know, so um, no, I think there, there, I think there are ways of doing it, but I totally get your challenge about uh, doing this on post. By the way, I have a real rant about, I, I'm not sure if I, it got into the book in the end, but about, I, I mean, I'm a musician as well, but I'm, I'm sort of, you know, into more sort of 1980s type, uh, late 70s, early 80s. But 1990s, I don't know if you remember that, but we had this sort of Britpop sort of flowering of, of, of British music. And um, I always have this debate about, I think, and you're like this actually, as with your Welsh uh, heritage, I think the Manic Street Preachers song, uh, Design for Life, is a great song in that it, it celebrates working class, class culture in a way that talks about intellectualism. It talks about libraries. It talk, you know, often when we see the characters of working classness by 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 uh, bands like Blur, nothing against Blur, but if you look at some of their songs in those <laughs> 90s, it is a bit of an appropriation of working classness. It's, it's a bit of a sort of a caricature. Whereas um, the, the Welsh boys, you know, I just think, yes, that's authentic. And it actually, you know, Working class culture is intellectual. Let's not let's not forget that, right? So, um, so anyway, sorry a bit of a rant yeah, on that, but no, I, I think I, I think you've got to get it right, and you've got to have authenticity. I totally agree. I, you know, I entirely get your, your what you mean on that, and I, you know, I will say, you know, that, that I, you know, I imagine, I, you know, having having not been, but uh, I, I imagine that in in parts of northern England, but certainly in in Wales, and you know, I know my 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 uncle goes up to the Durham Miners Gala, but certainly um, union libraries, my miners, um, libraries and, and things like that. And an in, in intellectualism around poetry and art from a working class roots is something that, that possibly, I, I, I can see in the past, I maybe can't see sort of pulled through. And at some point that got lost, maybe around the eighties, I think nineties, you know, there, there, there was maybe a, 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 a gap, uh, of some sort, in my, maybe in my knowledge of it, but um, certainly, yeah, w what it takes to be, you know, uh, 
uh, an intellectual but from a working class background i guess um mm-hmm. and and certainly that does appear strongly in 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 the welsh culture i think it does, um, and it's very very much absent i mean i haven't thought about this though to be honest but if you think about english um public debates there's so few working class public intellectuals particularly i have to say from a more left side of the debate you know um there's so few you think about i mean you know if we watch question time um you think about who gets on question time i can't remember the last time maybe listeners can remember but it just seems such a, a middle class thing and by the way you know um those debates you know i would say those panel debates are themselves a sort of middle class um, thing. And, you know, I would add, by the way, just in the workplace, the interview is a quintessential middle class selection tool. You know, again, I, I generalise a stereotype to be provocative here, but those children that have been speaking at the dinner table all their lives and been been taught how to advocate for themselves, speak over uh, lunch or dinner and, you know, all that stuff. You're gonna just be more comfortable when you're when you're up against three people looking at them interviewing you. And what's really frustrating is often the interview is testing you for skills that you don't need a performance for, right? So it's usually another job that isn't about being in front of three people in an intimidating space. But we use the interview as a selection tool. The conspiratorial side of social mobility researchers would say it's all set up to retain the social elites you know they you know i suppose i'm less conspiratorial although i think the system is failing but some people would argue we've actually created a system that is designed to perpetuate the elites you know and and so that's that that's possibly the bigger picture here we have, it, it's so difficult to unlock a system to address a system which has been geared to essentially perpetuate the same people in charge from generation to generation anyway i'll stop stop talking there no yeah as you say like i, I find it incredibly interesting and and, and we, we could probably go well over the hour and a half but I, you know i want to get focused back just in a little bit uh, you know on you know we've talked about individual teachers i wanted to ask about um, school leaders and, and sort of the setup of schools and whether there are things that that are present themselves as a barrier that we are doing ourselves you know I, I guess possibly in the way we structure what we're looking at whether it's that we're you know we're asking for data where it's you know PP versus non-PP or whether it's the the kind of uh, uh, curriculum or assessment structures that we're, we're choosing as leaders and middle leaders are there things you know there are in the book I should say but you know what would be things you pull out there um, for people to reflect on? So again, I've been speaking with teacher leaders uh, and getting some really good responses on this and some reflections. I mean, one of the things is very simple: is that equity, let's call it equity or or, or capacity mindset, should be front and centre of every conversation you have as a school leader. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a, it, it's so central this. So you are asking. Um, you know, in, in terms of what is the consistency of, of individualized feedback in our classrooms? Is there a systematic bias in our schools or our school? I think you can really ask those questions and I think you can do some very simple exercises, as I said, comparing perhaps assessments with teacher judgments and just doing that again, you've got to frame that in a very 
I think non-threatening way. So it's not you're not going to sort of sack anyone if their if their judgments are seen to be so out of line with the assessments. But I think as an exercise, as a very uh, constructive, positive exercise in, in let's try and improve some of the interactions in our classrooms if we can find if if there is these these biases in our own schools, which I suspect there will be. Um, I think for leaders as well, we talk a lot in the book about this. I think there is this developing authentic relationships with parents and communities. And there's some schools, by the way, you know, a lot of these things, a lot of secrets are in the system. I always say this. So a lot of the things we say in the book, of course, we, we review hundreds of research studies um, from across the world and all that. But a lot of it, to be honest, was me presenting to teachers over the years and spotting some really good practice and so there usually is a teacher or a school doing something incredibly well somewhere and so we cite some of those examples of, of working with with parents more closely um, and it, it's really difficult but you know I, I think part of this you, you mentioned that word authenticity it is trying to for example have low stakes meetings with parents so they come to their parents you know and I talk as one my kids are now just out of school but i think this is part of the function of the system that schools are under so much pressure but as a parent a lot of the information you get tends to be very much around you know uh the performance that in a very narrow way of your child or if there's something wrong you know um i think it's probably because schools don't have enough time probably but there needs to be just more basic relationship building with parents. And I think with some parents who themselves have had a very negative experience of education that stays with them, by the way, you talk to your friends about um, experiences of school. Honestly, they stay with you for life. If you have a negative experience of classroom, it makes you feel very intimidated when you walk into that school. You All the memories come back. So. There's some really interesting things I've seen in Scandinavia where you you know you have neutral um, locations for a celebration of not just academic things but other things. You know, there's been some lovely things I've seen around music or food. Um, you know, celebrating different cultures, um, uh, and so I think we can work harder all that. I t I mean the pushback I get on this sometimes, Lee. We've only got so much time. You know. Um, and I get that, but I think if you could enable some of your children to be more school ready, honestly, the benefits would be huge. One of the um, statistics we quote in the book is that at least half the variation in outcomes of children is due to outside school factors, not inside school factors. So if you were able to provide uh, free breakfast, if you were able to provide eyesight tests or at least refer children to somewhere that can do those dental checks or what have you, um, then I think the benefits for learning are huge. I think the balance for a school leader is how do you do all this and then ensure that the, the teaching is consistent and that you're recruiting enough teachers, et cetera. Et cetera. So I totally get that. Um, but I think there's lots of things that we suggest leaders um, can do um, on this. But as, as I said, this is very much a journey for me and, and I'm, I'm finding every time I give a talk, there is another suggestion, which is great. And that's something I want to start collecting and compiling so that eventually, you know, we'll have some really practical ideas for, for teachers to, to, to consider.
I'm going to pitch you my, my, my suggestion on that now. And this is something that I currently do. You know, I work in a, a challenging um, uh, 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 social, uh, economic, under-resourced catchment. I think the, 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 um, they, they've just done a study and, and, and the catchment for my school is, is I think, uh, definitely in the top five out of, I think, 2000 in, in, in Wales for things like social connectedness, and um, in the um, multiple disadvantages, uh, multiple de- factors of deprivation uh, thing. I can't remember the exact wording of the study. Um, so we, you know, we, we struggle with that. Um, but I, I, um, I, I, I have uh, broadly done away with the um, classroom app based communication, and I have uh, got myself a very old mobile phone, and we, do, I just WhatsApp parents. And do you know what? That really works. And I don't know what it is. And I, I have no idea. I think maybe it's the authenticity. Maybe it's more natural mm. to people, or maybe it's the classroom apps are and telephoning the, the attendance hotline to leave a message mm. uh, when you can WhatsApp someone is like a bit is a middle class thing to do. I don't know, but uh, you know, I, I will throw that out there. That that is my suggestion to people: is uh, you know, if you're struggling communicating, why not communicate in the way that most people do, which mm. is the natural way of doing things, which is you know a text message or a whatsapp not phoning a hotline to leave an answer phone message uh, mm. which i don't think anyone does know anyway uh, so that, that's my suggestion for you there you yeah i think see, see someone like like you who's kind of experienced and you know you've been you said what what i would like to see is because teachers coming into the profession as I said, one, they don't get any training around understanding disadvantage and, and think and us preparing them for that. Um, you know, what in one of my articles I sort of prepared it like it's like it's sort of maybe it's a bit of a crass metaphor, but it's like, you know, the first world war sending people over the trenches to, you know, with no preparation. It's like it's it feels a bit like that too. But I feel like those practical tips from teachers who are experienced for those that are going into this are new, who a lot of teachers are very nervous about interacting with parents, particularly, to be frank, um, those parents, you know, it's, it's really interesting what, what the studies show is there's a lot of parents that just don't interact at all. So there's the sort of missing middle, if you like. And then there's increasingly there's a very, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of challenging group who are challenging the whole nature of our schools, actually. And I and actually one of the reasons I think that's happening is because of all the things I'm talking about, I just don't think the curriculum and the way the schools are set up is is actually fulfilling many uh, expectations on what school is about. So there's a group that, and then of course there's the very sharp elbowed middle class parents who want the best for their children. It's really difficult to teachers. I think we need much more of a grounding for teachers in how do you negotiate, navigate that? Um, so that's something we could do more on, absolutely. But it's little tips like that that can make all the difference. It has to be authentic. Yeah. But while, while, while we're talking about parents then, and I wanted to ask this, you know, and we are coming to the end. It's a, a really tough one. But some people would say, you know, where, where this balance of, you know, I often see like these cartoons shared where it's like in the 60s, the parent was shouting at the kid and the, with the teacher next to them. And now it's the parents shouting at the teachers as well or you know like whose responsibility it is um does that need to change is that a perception thing of teachers who you know blame the parents or society blames the parents or is is that another one of these false dichotomies they're falling into 
Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I've seen those sort of cartoons as well. I actually think um, that the system itself is 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 needs changing. You know, I would argue, and again, this might, might not not everyone agrees with this. You know, I, I think that curriculum needs looking at you. Know, we fail a lot of children. The system fails a lot of children as it is at the moment. I think the Govian experiment has not worked out. You know, the idea that every child should do eight subjects, that school should be measured on progress, all this stuff, it hasn't worked out. And I think we need a more realistic system. And I think many children and their parents are put off by a system that is so loaded with middle class assumptions that I can kind of on some levels understand why they're rejecting it. And I think teachers are doing the best they can in many ways, right? And so for me, it's more systematic actually. Um, but, but if you had a system that was um, catering to all our children in an inclusive way, I think teachers would have more of a chance of creating um, authentic relationships. I think you can have authority and authenticity at the same time. I think it's a real skill and the teachers that do it and have it are, I always think, are amazing. You know, teaching is, in my view, one of the most complex, challenging human tasks we know, right? <laughs> Honestly. Um, and, and we talk a bit about that in the book. Um, and so don't underestimate. You know, one, of, one of the problems with teaching, I think, is that a lot of parents think they can know how to do it. You know, a lot of people sort of naively think it's easy. It's not. It's not. Um, so. Yeah, I think the system needs changing. And, and at the moment, um, I am very much trying to influence some of the key policymakers to look at things like Ofsted, which affects all schools in England, um, you know, to look at performance tables, because these are things that really set the tone. If we don't change the system, honestly, I think we will see stark achievement gaps, if we want to frame it in that way, for years to come. And I think we will see a crisis in ret teacher retention. So we have to do something. And, you know, a, a, a brilliant uh, kind of... Uh, message of uh, you know of hope of urgency for us to kind of um, end the show on. I will just say to you know the the listeners that you know this is the book uh, uh, a practical guide for teachers equity in education leveling the playing field for learning. You know I I I bought an extra copy is all I'm saying to you listeners so that I can hand it out. And I think you're right. You know this this isn't just a book for um, maybe. Uh, teachers like me who are you know uh, maybe feel like they know that they're in an area of social deprivation but you know I recognize this from teaching in other schools that that this is something that affects across the board and and in all schools I think there's things in this that that teachers and leaders could could look at and reflect on what they are doing within the within their own schools uh, no matter where you you feel your school is on that on that spectrum absolutely well it's been a real pleasure i, I hope i i've it inspired and uh, people rather than depressed them on this because i do think it's difficult this but you know if it was easy we would have solved it by now um i do urge people to go out and, and get the book because there is a lot of detail nuance in in it and i'm looking forward very much to all the talks i'm doing over the next six months at least um, to trust around the country and indeed in other countries it's, it's, it's been great so I'm so pleased that it struck a chord with everyone I just hope it leads to better outcomes for all those children we all want to serve 
No, uh, thank you so much for giving up your time to join us. Um, if you are listening live, don't forget over on Twitter slash X, as it's now called, um, we're just about to start the debate on education tonight, uh, where you can join us over in a Twitter space or X space, as they're now called. Thank you again to Lee, and we will see you all next time from here in South Wales. Nostar and good night. Uh, thank you again, Lee. Thank you. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.